Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. The the sharp-eyed among you will notice that I am not Claire Mercer, um, who unfortunately is ill, uh, but may well be watching in on us uh, from afar through some distance and remote technology that I don't um, even hazard to understand. Um, But my name is Gareth Jones. I am Professor of uh, Urban Geography here at the LSC uh, and also Director of the MSC Urbanisation and Development, which is a master's programme that I co-initiated with Sylvia Chan, whose work and life uh, is the inspiration for this lecture series and which we're here to, in some respects, uh, celebrate. Um, I'm very pleased uh, to welcome Sue Parnell um, to the online audience, wherever you are, uh, and you all here who've uh, troubled to come in uh, and brave the train strike um, to be uh, in the room. This is the third Uh, lecture uh, of the annual series organized in Sylve's memory Uh, and I think it's very fitting um, that Sue is uh, this year's presenter. Sue is Global Challenges Research Professor in School of Geography at the University of Bristol and also Emeritus Professor at the African Center for Cities at the University of Cape Town. Sue's been actively involved in local, national, and global urban policy debates, uh, most recently around the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, and is an advocate for better science policy engagement on cities. Um, Indeed, in today's lecture, which is entitled Engaging the Global Urban Agenda from the South, Sue will outline why a new urban disposition that breaks with geographies, disciplines, and ideologies might be helpful in building new communities of practice to advance a global urban agenda. To some of the mechanics, uh, for those of you on X, uh, formerly Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Global. The event is also being recorded and subject to some technical difficulties um, should be available as a podcast in the fairly near uh, future. Uh, At the end of Sue's talk, there will be an opportunity to uh, pose questions. For those online, um, if you could use the Q&A function uh, and indicate both who you are and perhaps an affiliation, as well as a brief Uh, and answerable uh, question, uh, please. Uh, And to those of you here, uh, we'll use the old-fashioned digital method uh, of raising a hand. I will try and spot you, collate some questions together. Again, if you could say who you are, an affiliation, or uh, master's program, uh, etc. And again, we'll ask the questions uh, through that medium to Sue. Um, at the end of which, 
There is also a drinks reception, uh, not in this building, but in the new centre building, uh, 150 or so metres away, if the lure of alcohol or other beverages can get you that far, uh, in the main lobby of the new centre building from around about 8 o'clock, uh, and for as long, more or less, as we can endure, but certainly until 9 o'clock, um, or whichever is sooner. Uh, so that just leads me to welcome Sue. Delighted to hand over to you. And please, thank Great. you. Um, I'm going to stand up because I'm at that awkward phase where I can't work out whether my glasses are on or not on and all of those kinds of things. So bear with me. I'd like to have just sat down, um, but I think I'll find it a whole lot easier up here. Does that work for you? It's okay? Great. Um, see what I mean? And if I kind of peer at you, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, okay. So I wanted to start with Sylvia. Um, and Sylvia knew that I really liked her. Um, and, and I think that she knew that I admired her. But I don't think that she knew why she inspired me. And there are a number of reasons for that, and, and I want you to hold on to those because I'll come back to them right at the end, okay? And I think the first for me was that I actually, unlike many people here at LSE, didn't know Sylvia at first in person. I met her as a reader, um, so it was a remote relationship. And one of the things I really liked about my relationship with her as an author was that she was clear, she was authoritative, and she sought to illuminate things for me. She didn't try to obfuscate them. And she took me to places where I had never been. She was a Latin American specialist, and I was an African specialist. And so I went to places that I didn't know, but she did much more than provide me with an upmarket tour guide experience. Because what she was able to do was to bring conceptual depth to empirical work and sustained empirical work. I think one of the things which really sets uh, the work of somebody like Sylvia apart in, in terms of, uh, is not just that she wrote over a long and extended period of time and became more and more, and more authoritative, but that she continued to have a serious empirical uh, engagement. And, and for me, that was just enormously valuable. I then came to know her via others She'd been their supervisor, she'd been their teacher, she was their friend. She was interesting, charismatic, all of those kinds of things. But I think for me, what remains the most sort of indelible sense of Sylvia, beyond the beautiful, the charismatic, the inspiring, uh, the stimulating, was really the sense of the professional. Um, very, very systematic um, about everything that she did and how she did it, and this ability to move for me from a local encounter, which was well known and deep and, and familiar to her, and to be able to interpret that in ways that I thought, uh, for me, were really, really stimulating. So, that's Sylvia. And for those of you who've come out of a, a gender studies uh, perspective rather than the urban, um, we'll see a resonance in some of what I'm going to say tonight in the sense that I'm going to be talking about the global agenda and the urban agenda and the southern agenda. But implicit in that is one of Sylvia's really important and enduring 
interests and concerns, which was really about inequality and gender inequality in particular. Yeah? And why I think that I'm, I'm going to stray from that very specific entry point, but we'll come back to it. Why I think that that is, is, is useful is that I think what she did always was to hold this coupling of problems. It was never a simple problem. Gender isn't a simple problem ever. Yeah? Gender in cities is never a simple problem. And gender in southern cities, of course, generates complexity on complexity. So I'm going to talk tonight about southern urbanism, gender in the cities, but only indirectly. What I want to do is that I want to talk and to extract one element of that and to talk about really the fact that in order to get to the hub of these difficult, these complex, these, these overlaying problems, we need an analysis that is simultaneously global, national, and local. Now, I'm going to talk about the global. That does not mean that I prioritize the global. I don't think that there's a, a hierarchy here. Okay? I, I happen to be working on the global at this point in my life. There have been other moments when I've worked on the local. Um, and I certainly have worked on the national. But the global space, it seems to me, is one that is relatively new for cities. And it requires us to think quite differently and in ways that I think are quite stimulating. Yeah? And in essence, what I want to try and make a case for is that if you're going to engage a global urban agenda, you have to be able to hold very diverse forms of evidence. You can't take evidence from one place or from one sector. You've got to hold a diversity of evidence. Secondly, the scientific voices that you invoke have got to be properly embedded in the places where people are going to listen. Okay? So that is terribly important that you can influence uh, the voices that are there. And then third, if you're going to speak globally, and I'll make this point a number of times, and I'm not apologizing for that, you have to have a universal credibility to what you say. You can, in other words, you can't say you're speaking globally if you're only speaking to and from London. Yeah? It's that, that makes no sense. So, and finally, I'm going to come back to this point at the end, is that if we're going to do that, I think we have to actually change our sense of self, change the way that we imagine we're going to operate and the way that we do, in fact, pursue our scholarship. So, where are we at and how different is that from where we need to get to? Is this a pointer? Yes, it is. Yay. Okay. Um, so, I'm sure some of you come out of a gender rather than an urban studies background. So, if I try and stay with me while I, I move across the two. But just to reiterate where we've come from, I think that we have a consensus on the three points over there. First of all, most people agree that cities are the most difficult places to work and the most important and the most hopeful places to work. In other words, yeah, these are the places where problems manifest in their most extreme form, but they are also places where we are likely to solve problems more rapidly than anywhere else. So cities are the frontier, if you like. Secondly, I think we are at a consensus. I don't think it's deeply contentious to say to be global 
is to have a southern bias. Okay? In other words, if you're going to speak for the world, for the globe, you're going to have to be able to speak from the south. The south is bigger, more important, and more different and less well understood than the north. In crude, you have to have a southern bias. And I'll come back and make that point in a slightly different way. And so, spoiler, what does it mean to have a global urban agenda? Effectively means if it doesn't work in the south, it doesn't work. Third, I think we have to say that we have made some progress and we have already made some strong normative and institutional shifts. And that's good news. Okay? So we're not working off a completely hollow base, and I'll spell that out in a second. But these three points, I think, are slightly different, and they're going to be what I try to highlight in today's lecture. I think I'm going to try and make the case to you that if we are going to have an effective global urban agenda, it has to be what I'm going to call post-paradigmatic. In other words, we're not trying to replace a Marxist agenda with a Weberian agenda, with a post-structuralist agenda. I think we're looking for something new and something different that is post-paradigmatic. We need fresh concepts. It's less ambitious at one level. Fresh concepts rather than big, new, meta-theoretical ideas. Secondly, and I'm going to spend a bit of time on this in a second, it seems to me, and I don't know how many people, my guess is not an awful lot of you in the room, would consider yourselves urban data analytic nerds. Anyone who's a closet urban data analytic nerd? Probably not. Okay, then you better listen to what I'm saying, because effectively some of what I'm going to do is to say that they do know and have some things in their toolkit that we should be listening to and knowing, even though they may be able to do a lot of what they're doing better, particularly if we help. I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> Third, it seems to me that if we're going to build this global urban agenda in particular ways built on this new urban science, we've also got to get better interfaces with policymakers. And I can spell out what that means. And finally, is this idea that we need a new urban disposition. But before I go any further, I do just want to clarify a basic concept, or rather, what is embedded in very loose terminology and what I think is not a single concept. And we use it in a way that is messy, inaccurate, and confusing. And I'm not going to solve that problem, but I am going to try and highlight the multiple meanings of what I think of as the global urban agenda. So, some people, when they talk about the global urban agenda, United Councils of Local Government, Cities C40, think of this as how do cities get a place at the table? Okay? So how do you get city representation, subnational representation in global forums? That's for them the global urban agenda. Other people think of if we add all the stuff that's happening in cities together, what do we get? So I always think of that UNEP report, I don't know if you've seen it, on the weight of cities, um, where they basically add everything together. How much cement do you need? How much is being built in? What's the global carbon footprint of cities? That's the sum stuff, the adding it all up stuff. Okay? And clearly that's a global thing. So, and that's probably the most significant and overarching sense of the global urban agenda. But there are others. Most of you will, I think, have studied the idea of planetary urbanism, this idea that cities spread beyond their boundaries, 
but they have a footprint beyond not just the national, but they extend into the oceans and into the sea. Um, and then we have this idea of cities and globalization, that cities take on a very different meaning in the context of global relations, where they have city-to-city -city relationships. So under conditions of globalization, that cities assume a very, so London means something which is different from the United Kingdom. It has a power and a resonance associated with its position in the globe. And then perhaps most importantly, this idea of, and this is what the SDG 11 does, is that it says there are now some universal values for cities. There may be uh, for things like security uh, for women, but there may also be for land tenure, for men and for women. And that's new, that kind of thinking. This idea of universal rights that manifest in an urban context. And the problem at the moment is that we use these terms, we bandy them around, we don't actually disaggregate them. Um, and as a result, I think we land up quite often with some fairly messy interactions um, of, of these concepts. Having said that, I'm going to do exactly that, and I want you to hold all of those bits, yeah, the kaleidoscope of the global urban in your mind. And underpinning this, of course, is this graph or version of it. This is the latest version. Um, I've just taken it out of a National Academy of Sciences report of a graph you have seen on many different occasions. But just to be really clear, here's the 1950s, the blue, uh, of the developed urban, the orange of the, what we would now call the global south, and you see there really is only one story in town as population increases. Where is it increasing? This is the argument about why the global urban is a southern urban, but it is also the story of why global policy has to be an urban policy. So those are all things that we know we take for granted. What I think is less... Um, Again, we know this, but just to remind us of why it's so important. This is thanks to a colleague of mine, Edgar Peterson. This is his slide. And what it shows you is the growth from 1750 to 1950, 200 years, 430 million people living in cities after a 15 million. So it's a significant increase, massive transformation from 10% of the world to 50%, this country absolutely radically changed by urbanization. But when you think of where we are now and where we're going to, and you look at this graph, 2050 to 2030, that transition, which only is 4% different, but the world population is so different and that pace of change is so different. So if you think about complex problems, one of the things which makes complex problems complex is often their temporal squeeze, right? So this is one of those uh, things that we have to face. So I already said, and here in case you doubted me, that we've made some progress. We have made progress. Not enough. We've got to make the next steps. That's what we're coming on to think about. How do we do that? But just to kind of, whew, we have done something, remind ourselves, that there is already in place an explicit, what I would call global urban agenda of a kind that there was not 15 or even 20 years ago, or 20 or even 15 years ago. So we have the new urban agenda, we've got the 2030, the SDGs, 
Really significantly, the climate people have come to the fore, so have the biodiversity people, put cities at the cutting edge. And you see that. You go into any local authority anywhere in the world now, and they will talk climate, they will talk biodiversity as an urban issue in the ways that they had not done before. WHO is completely reworking uh, a lot of its material to embrace the idea of the urban. And even the G7 and the G20 now have urban working groups for the first time ever. So there are platforms to engage the urban, just as you know, there are platforms in most parts of the world, not all, for cities to engage uh, the urban. That's great. But while all that has been happening, something has been happening back in the academy. What is it? Is it good enough? And how do we begin to shift and to change it? In other words, is this the kind of stuff that someone like Sylvia would be able to say, you know what, that's quite interesting, actually. When I stop to think about the relationships of gender in a particular city, would it help or wouldn't it? Try and hold, you won't see the immediate connection. Let's see where we get to. Basically, what, I'm going to give you four points of what I think science is currently doing probably quite well, but could do better, must do better, if it is genuinely to land up taking up uh, some of the intractable problems that we have. So the first thing which seems to me to be an attribute of what is sometimes called urban science, it's a very loose catch-all phrase, means slightly different things to different people, but effectively what they're talking about is the power to analyze very different volumes of material across very different kinds of sectors to be able to demonstrate that cities are what are called complex adaptive systems. In other words, that there are, and we think about this in, in social theory and other kinds of ways, we think about flux, we think about flow, we think uh, about networks, and the, those ideas draw from complex systems thinking. And cities are seen as, in a way, the quintessential complex open system, where the vectors may be things like disease, but they may be financial flows or even water. And of course, those things interact. So we can't talk about gender without talking about money. We certainly can't talk about gender without talking about health. We may not be able to talk about gender without talking about war. There are a number of different variables and their sets of interactions uh, which are there. So what urban science, I think, has been very good at doing through partly this massive new computing power and these major new analytical uh, tools is it's better at looking at those dynamics. Okay? It's not perfect. And it's far from perfect because, of course, it is, remains a model-driven, data-driven, analytical tool. And those of you in the room who are geographers and who are as old as I am will remember the debate about GIS and whether GIS was a new tool or whether GIS actually brought in a whole lot of new spatial analytical capacities that actually invoked new theoretical sets of insights. And it seems to me that some of what's happening in urban science is that debate on steroids. Okay. But there's no question that the capacity and the power of urban science is only as good as the questions that it asks. And of course, we want to come back to that in a second. 
So that's the first attribute. I think the second attribute, and again, this is something you know, we want to kind of stop and praise our scientific colleagues, because I think they've been quite good at doing. They have resurrected the idea, they've brought to the party, in particular, the idea of coupled social ecological systems. In other words, and sometimes social technical systems, but I'm going to focus here on social ecological uh, systems. And simply here is this idea that it is not just a set of material processes or physical processes out there that determine what goes on in cities, or even indeed economic processes which are there, but that people are central to the way that cities emerge in particular kinds of ways. And I think the IPCC is being the, the leading edge of that. And I just wanted to give you some ex examples of where I think the IPCC has strayed happily, it's an endorsement, not a critique, others may think it's a critique, has strayed from its primary mandate of modeling climate. Okay? That's what the IPCC was set up to model climate and to make predictions, to tell us about future climates. That's what it was for. But if you have a look at what the IPCC has actually done, it has identified the idea of urban risk. It talks about where you're going to have extreme heat events, and in particular, where you're going to have extreme heat events related to where there are vulnerable people. It's made interventions um, to say, we need to examine questions of air pollution, which are related to climate change, but they are not climate change itself. In other words, it has strayed it has gone into this coupled domain uh, about the relationship between the climate system and the human system and the health system. It's done that in all sorts of ways. It's actually even made what might be construed as overtly political interventions about where money can and should be spent in terms of mitigation and adaptation. And out of that, I think what we're seeing beginning to emerge, and we might want to step back into the IPCC and do an even more in-depth analysis and ask whether they are going, in fact, in the right direction. But what it seems to me that is coming out is certainly at the urban scale that the nexus of health, climate, and demography is really the absolutely critical one. But again here, and I've got Sylvia sitting on my shoulder asking the question, so what data have they got on gender? What's the scale that they're operating at? Are they actually getting the causal relationships absolutely appropriate? And it's that generally weak kind of information in these very big macro models and the weak social science that is behind it that one often comes uh, out with. The third attribute of the big new urban science that I want to draw attention to is the way that data is collected and the fact that it means that we, we're getting information you never used to get either from ethnography, sorry Gareth, or from social surveys, okay? It just, it, it goes beyond that. It's, it's a whole different set of information. And when you get in from, you know, you know what it's like if you're a gossip. You get information from you, you tell me one thing. You get information from you, you tell me another thing. If I get information from you as well, then I really begin to start getting a very different kind of picture. And so the fact that we're getting very different sources of information because of this data analytical power is unleashing a whole lot of new information about place. Okay? And what's happening is, is that you've got new gossip centers, new cafes, if you like, and they cluster in places like Zurich 
and Singapore and Chicago and all these really well-resourced places because they, it takes a lot of money to host these kinds of centers. But what they are doing is they are telling us a lot about not just about local places, but about places we never used to know before. And sometimes, this is where I'm going tomorrow, uh, it's Cape Town. Sometimes they're telling us about these places in the foreground, those informal settlements that we never used to get into because actually people there have got cell phones. They have got a hold of that kind of information. It's not in the census, not in the surveys. We can tell things about occupancy rates. We can tell numbers and flows of people. It's also telling us at a macro scale, and you can't see the dots on this, but if you take out the extra A in Chicago, and you go and have a look at Louis Betancourt's work uh, from the University of Chicago, it's a fabulous website. And what they're doing is they're producing images and information and analytics about places we didn't even know existed, let alone what they were called or how many people lived there. So there's a power to all of that. The southern relevance of it, one of the really important questions is about who owns the data. The other important question is about who has the power and the capacity to analyze it, to extract it. Okay, what, and it goes back to that question we've been asking. What uh, are we asking of it? Sorry, I seem to be going rather faster through my slides. Okay, the fourth attribute is that I think this urban science has been transformative um, because it has embraced multidisciplinarity. I'm sure you've, you've, you've all encountered the debates about trans and inter and, and multidisciplinarity. Yeah? You all, I'm using multi, it's easier, it's less complicated, it's less ambitious. The data scientists definitely come from physics, from computer science, from geography, from epidemiology. It's, it's deeply problematic, like most interdisciplinary activities, because it's quite fragmented, doesn't have a disciplinary home, it's not clear where you're going to get a job, all the things which we know, what the codes are, do you know if it's good or bad work, you know, it's, it's problematic for all of those kinds of reasons. And the way that engineers think about cities is very different from the way that biologists think about cities. So even within the sciences, and I promise you the way that they think about it is very different from the way that an anthropologist would think about it. So there really are some serious stresses in this idea that everybody is committed to this common cause. However, there is a notional logic in urban data analytics that you can bring all of these things to bear, that there is a space and a rationale for integrating and bringing that together. The social scientists find this difficult, and um, there's a bit of self-publicizing going on there. There's a, there's a really lovely paper by James Jimney and Sue Parnell, uh, which basically says, look, this isn't new. This tension in how we've always understood, someone like Mario will give you a much better articulation of this, this sort of tension on whether you see and how you understand modernity uh, in the city. Whether you, you know, theoretically, what do you do about the art and the science? of a city? How do you hold those two elements in tension? How do, you, how do you manage the big structural changes with the individual and the experiential? These are well known in urban studies and it seems to me that this new urban science suffers from it as much and more. It doesn't necessarily realize that there is a longer history of it. But 
there are calls and there are perhaps simplistic calls for that to be brought to bear. I made the claim at the beginning of this talk that I thought, in fact, we may make greater progress by what I call post-paradigmatic changes rather than big new meta-theory. And one of the places that I think has done that exceptionally well, and Michael, who is the PI on this project um, of Peak Urban, led a really interesting consortium of very diverse scholars, from hard engineers, scientists, epi uh, people, sociologists, historians, and others, to think in ways that bring these different elements together. If you want to find out more about it, Peak Urban is at the bottom. You can have a look at it. It was a really big five, I think, six year study from Colombia, Bangalore, South Africa, uh, Beijing, um, so, and to some extent the UK. And part of what we we're trying to do there was not just to say, okay, well, you bring your toys and I'll bring my toys and let's see if we can play together, but rather to think about kind of how do we describe the ways that you may collaborate? What are the rules of some of the new games? What are the modalities of doing that? And I found this PEAK, which I'll go through in a second, more useful now than I did when we started. So let me try you on it, and you may want to explore it a little later on. And you'll see what I'm trying to do is I'm going back to those four elements of the urban science, which I said were good but not good enough, to say we're beginning to be able to incorporate these. We're beginning to be able to use them. And implicit in what I'm saying is if you're going to do urban stuff at the global scale, you've got to do all of these things because you're not talking only to the engineer. You're not talking only to the plan. Okay? You have to talk to everybody. You actually have to bring them all together and you have to be able to synthesize, to generalize, to not exclude, to make strategic interventions. So P is what you would expect. It's prediction. So what when we take a whole lot of different information, whether it's the micro from the anthropologist or whether it's the large-scale hydrologist talking. When we bring all of those things together, what are the predictions that we're able to do? What are the, what are the patterns? What are the projections of what we will see? Second is this idea of emergence. And those of you who are scientists in the room will have come across this notion of emergence before as a very particular meaning and understanding. I, I'm putting it into kind of lay social science terms, if you like, or at least for me, which is when we have a whole series of processes and dynamics happening in a space, what does it create? Okay? I mean, almost crudely, you put a, have a, a dinner party of those people together and you have a dinner party of these people together, you're going to get a very different dynamic. Okay? What happens? What comes out of? What emerges? What is emergent from these interactions, these elements, these properties, and their interactions. Okay? We've already said you can't understand the city if you don't understand both material flows and fiscal flows and emotional flows and a set of other kinds of flows. So what happens and how do you begin to put those together? So we need to know what's going on. We need some basics and some of that stuff on prediction. What happens analytically is a much harder thing to get to, that question of emergence. That, they often stop there. That's, in a way, what the complex systems people are thinking about. That's sort of what they do. Okay? That's almost where they stop. 
But here come the political scientists and others, the political geographers, to say, there's power here. Sylvia's here. There's power. What does it mean? Who has power? How is it executed? And that question of adoption, how is something absorbed into a city? How is it absorbed into my city versus into your city? Is it put into law? Is it put into common practice? Is it put into fashion? What is it put into? How does it become part of the everyday? How does it become part of the regulatory framework? Is it in the building codes or is it in the fiscal guidelines? It's going to make a huge difference to how things work out in particular kinds of ways. And then, of course, there's this question of knowledge and how we share knowledge, how we train people, what do we think is important enough to expose them to. So PEAK was one of those projects that I think really did try to sit back and say, okay, let's not just do another lab like the very effective, very successful ones that I was highlighting from Singapore, ETH or Chicago, but let's also try to think a little bit about how we do that. Um, and, and you can go back and look. And that built on earlier work that Michael had been involved in, in this sort of thinking about urban transformations. What's the politics of it? Okay, what's the, what's, what's the kind of the dynamic of these things? And when we started to think, or I started to think about kind of how does this work at the global scale rather than at the local scale? Because okay? I don't think that's necessarily exactly the same in a city context from when you're working on a national urban strategy to where you're working with the G7 or uh, with the UN. What does that mean? But across all of those scales is this deeply political question of what's the politics? How do we get the stuff to the people we need to know? Who's going to listen? How do we make them listen? How do we have authority to get to those places? And not just how do we have authority for now, but how do we have authority that is sustained and is enduring? For those of you who are academics, this is the impact agenda. Okay? I mean, it, in another kind of way of writing it. It's like, how do you ensure that the conduits that you are using are valid, credible, ethical, sustainable? You know? Are they going to be there? And who's going to actually replicate them in particular kinds of ways? And just to be frank, they don't always work. And I love this example because I've been trying to write a piece on the Sustainable Development Goals and Gender. And it turns out, at least to my mind, maybe some of you have got a better solution to this than I do. But what I discover is that, actually, if we look at the global agenda at the moment, there's almost nothing on gender in cities. It doesn't exist. Okay? And I think, how can that possibly be? We've got a really strong, sustained group of feminist scholars who worked on cities, who worked on getting the global agenda to take the question of gender seriously. We've just lauded all these wonderful people who worked on the urban question, and we come to look at gender in the city, and they're absolutely dissonant. If you read what is in SDG 5 and what is in SDG 11, they are absolutely dissonant. I think there are lots of interesting explanations for that. One of them is about the politics of knowledge and the ephemeral politics of knowledge and about when knowledge is constructed, who it's constructed by, and whether it gets embedded in an institution, where that institution is, and what its ongoing mandate is. And if you look at the gender lobby, what you'll discover is that it was hugely powerful. Changed the way that censuses recorded information. 
It's changed all sorts of things about monitoring and tracking. It changed masses of things in education. Okay, you can't go into an educational space without gender being very, very dominant. But despite all the work on gender in the city, when the caucus that really pushed for the urban question came together, there was no one there, or at least there was nobody put their hand up, to say, <coughs> excuse me, can we talk about gender in this space? So if you look at the targets and the indicators on Goal 11, they are completely and absolutely missing. So the politics of knowledge is not just about having something to say, it is also about the careful crafting of the institutions so that they can sustain an argument, track it, and extend it. And it seems to me that part of that is about having an argument that moves and evolves. Because you can't keep saying, actually, cities are really important. More than 50% of people study and live in cities. Yeah? We've all used that essay opening line. Okay. And it's not good enough. Okay. It's just not good enough anymore. Of course, it's still true. Perhaps more true now than it was before, but it's not going to hold the space. It's not going to build the institutions. So what is? Here's one suggestion. There would be others, and I hope that there will be others, that will push back and critique that. But it is, Gareth said to me when he looked at the slide, he says, you've got one on, on its side. Is that intentional? I said, yes, it's for when everyone's dropping off. You have to actually now go like this so you can see it. This is a piece which um, a number of us put together trying to make a case for what, the, in a way, the next step on the argument is about cities and the global urban agenda. And the first thing is that we think that the scientists are right. You've got to foreground this complexity. You've got to foreground the idea that there are these multiple processes. Secondly, we really think, and again, here's Sylvia, now right on top of my head, saying you cannot only focus on the economic. You absolutely have also got to sustain the social question alongside of that. Third is the point I've just made, which is that you've got to get your act together and find some of those political administration or politics people, I don't know who they are, who understand how world institutions work, just like old-fashioned regime theory used to understand how cities worked and used to make some arguments about how to advance the urban question. So if the urban, in other words, is not simply the purview of city council or of civic organizations, but it is also the domain in which the treasury operates or in which the Department of Housing operates or at a global scale where the WHO operates or the G7 operates, how do we enter into those spaces and how do we ensure that the right people are brought to bear? And part of that difficulty is a one of the question of representation of places from the global south. Because we all know, and I see uh, IID sitting here, and I'm reminded of, of the, the amazing work that IID does on the climate negotiations in supporting low-income countries to participate in the highly technical work of negotiations. If you do not have those people sitting around the table talking about loss and damage, then you're going to get a very different outcome from what you will get when you have a G7-dominated cohort talking about loss and damage. So those technical questions are absolutely crucial. And that, of course, brings us to the question of the representation both of women and of the global South. And so 
in developing this, and you can see these are a number of slides which draw from, and I just want to highlight this. It's quite weird, actually. I've increasingly, over the last kind of couple of years, been working collectively rather than individually. Um, and so this, again, is a, a joint piece rather than an individual piece that I'm highlighting here. But I think it's, it's an interesting set of work uh, that is, is coming out. And it's, it's really asking that question of kind of, well, okay, if we are interested in cities and the global urban agenda, where and how do we have to land that? In other words, it would be like saying, at national government, clearly you need to land stuff in the treasury, okay? Probably other places too, Department of Land, uh, but unambiguously the treasury. City council, where do you have to land? Unambiguously the finance people, but also the planners. You know, lots of those sorts of things. But globally, where do you land things? And how do you do that? And one of the arguments here is that, well, it would be lovely to have a really powerful body like the IPCC uh, or the Biodiversity Outlook. We're not going to get it. It's too expensive, too complicated, not going to happen again. Put it aside. Okay, so what else? And so what we come up with, rather, is a set of principles of what you might want to do, um, and which acknowledge both global power dynamics and are sensitive to those deep insensitivities. I mean, <laughs> the number of African scholars who, who can get a visa to go to a global meeting, especially if the global meeting happens to be in London. We won't say very much more about that right now. But the point is, is that the politics of who can actually attend those meetings, how many of those people are there, what else are they not doing because they're coming to some of these global uh, meetings is really, really important. So finding the appropriate numbers and cohorts of that, establishing which the important platforms are, it's a really interesting piece of work we're trying to think about at the moment, is both, as I said, the G7 and the G20 have both set up open working groups. Is that worthwhile engaging with or not? Okay. They've been going for about five years now. Maybe this is really crucial. It's going to be groundbreaking in terms of getting traction but maybe we want to concentrate somewhere else. So how do we know that? And where's the research on that? And then, crucially, how do you sustain that? And so relationships. The ISC is something called the International Science Council. If you've never seen it, have a look. They happen to be the representatives who hold the scientific seat for all of us to speak in the UN. What do they know? What are they saying about urban? Are they doing enough? Do they know who we are? How do we use those things? That's not an exhaustive list at all, but it is an effort to think about these sorts of questions. So, you know, should we have all been at COP last week or should we be going down to Brazil for the next G20 meeting in order to engage? Those are, those are really important questions when we begin to think about the role of science. But I want to try and wind up, Gareth, and, and step back and say something slightly different from what I've been saying. So if I had to summarize what I've said so far, we think there's a problem, we think it's a complex problem, we know it includes difficult issues like gender and inequality and biodiversity and ecology and climate change. We know that cities are the place where it's going to get sorted out or not. We know that there are some new openings which we've created, which are great. We also know that there are some potentially useful tools, good, bad, otherwise we can critique them, but we could certainly potentially improve them. And we know, assuming we do all this better and we get a better evidence base to make some 
better interventions in more strategic places around core questions, that cities might actually become sites of transformation. Is that enough? And so, largely out of the uh, peak work that I highlighted for you earlier, some of us have been trying to take a step further and I'm not going to go into detail on it and I'm hoping that maybe you'll land up with another lecture on it from somebody else um, on this because I think it offers us some interesting opportunities. And this builds on this idea that what we need is actually not a new Weber. Maybe it'd be nice to have a new Weber to help us understand cities. But actually, there's probably a lot else we can do. What do we need to begin to get to an intellectually coherent, si something which has scientific integrity, that has traction globally as well as locally, that has credibility whether you are sitting in Pakistan or whether you're sitting in Canada? How do we begin to think about cities in slightly new and different ways that will galvanize us, that will energize us, that will bring us together, that will enable us to proliferate our energies and make the sorts of interventions that we need. And so in a new book which Carson Barn and Michael Keith and Edgar Peterson are putting out, we make an argument that we think we need to have a new urban disposition. What do we mean by that? What we're really saying is that it is important to have a normative agenda. Okay? In other words, there is a value base to what we want and who we are and how we act. And the way that that normative base manifests in the first instance is through the kinds of questions we ask. Are men and women treated the same or different? Does it make a difference to who you are in the city if you are rich or if you are poor? for example, and there would be others associated with those kinds of questions. But the sorts of questions that we ask of a process are normative questions. They open up the kinds of values that we wish to display. But based on that, we also have to go further, not just to ask what we want and what we think is right or what is moral, but to ask analytical questions. Questions which make us able to see the underlying structures and dynamics which configure our engagement with the realities of the city, the citizens, the urban processes. So those analytical puzzles, how do I, what do I, what do I look for? What am I trying to engage? Where do I engage? If I'm engaging in a new urban water tariff, what does that mean? What do I need to know? Okay. And those are not big theoretical questions. They may be informed by theory, they may be informed by multiple points of theory, but they are not inherently necessarily paradigmatic questions. They may be multi-paradigmatic, in other words, in their configuration. And then wanting something, asking something, engaging with what that means to begin to put it all together, stop short of the idea that we would ourselves engage in transformative acts. And there may be transformative acts, which we think of as the operational space, which we do individually, but they are much more likely, given what we have said about the complexity of cities, to be questions that are collective, that 
rest on you telling me about the soils because I simply do not know. But we've looked at the puzzle of why really informal settlements are exposed to diseases in the ways that they are because of underlying holding of water. I can tell you about the diseases, I'm a medic. You can tell me about something else. These communities of practice that are likely to emerge, that will sustain us, that may be across different kinds of roles, not just sectoral expertises. So that actually the politician is working with the scientific specialist who's working with the consultant in particular kinds of ways. And so this urban disposition is not linear in any kind of way, uh, but it has at least those elements. And that brings me back, I think, to Sylvia. And in fact, Sylvia and Cathy and Caroline and any number of the people who formed, I think, part of this very potent cohort, this community of practice, which I think exemplifies in some senses what we are talking about when we think of a new urban disposition. Because what Sylvia warned of and what she spoke very articulately about was she said, don't conflate the emancipation of an individual woman with the removal of the structural imperatives of, a, of gendering of communities as a whole. Okay? They're not one and the same thing. Be careful of those things. So she, in other words, what she was really alert to was the interplay between the individual and the structure, between the individual and the collective, between the wider dynamics of gendered exclusion and other forms of urban exclusion as they manifested in some parts of the city much more than they manifested in other parts of the city. And so I like to think um, that Sylvia would be quite happy to embrace the idea of a new urban disposition. Uh, what I do know is that her work would be sharp, penetrating, and stimulating in making us ask the kinds of questions of urban science that would illuminate the individual and the structural. And it would make us, her work absolutely would alert us to the kinds of gender biases and to the southern exclusions that I think so typically form part of these very data-rich uh, analytical tools that are otherwise proliferating. And so I wanted to end with Sylvia in a way as I had started, which is to say, when you think about the person in the round, you think about their work and their contribution in the round, what do they leave with you? They leave evidence, but they leave more than that. They open up inquiry, they open up normative value, they open up, in some senses, a disposition. And that disposition doesn't have to be a static one. It is one that starts and continues and can be uh, taken up by others. So thanks. Thanks, Sue, for um, a wonderful and, and wide-ranging <laughs> lecture. Um, and, and I think in particular, which you touched upon at the end there, um, which was the way in which you invoke Sylve's uh, memory without memorialization through, through the topics and, and themes that you raised, which was certainly both the sort of uh, 
the aim and the motivation for this series, but also um, very much um, discussions with Sylve herself um, at the end of her life. So uh, I think she would appreciate um, what you had to say in a whole series of different ways from the personal and to that, that normative. What's this for um, that, we, that we do uh, in places like this? Um, I want to open up uh, initially to questions in the room uh, and then I will, rather than try and be too hybrid, uh, and uh, uh, open up then to uh, the people outside of the room, the online audience, for questions. As I said at the outset, um, if you could say who you are and perhaps an affiliative uh, hook as well and uh, ask your your question. I'll try and collate a few of them together um, if necessary and we will have and take the discussion from there. So hands up in the room in the old-fashioned way. Cathy, uh, um, person here, so microphone to the front and then next person along. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you Gareth. Thank you Sue. Absolutely amazing. Really loved it, and also to echo what Gareth said, I think Sylvia would have felt very privileged in the way that you included and referred to her, um, her work. So I, 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 really, you know, I really appreciate that. And actually, and this relates also to what Gareth says, I also think that towards the end of Sylvia's career that actually she began to address many of the issues which you also mentioned, Sue, um, about urbanization and gendered urbanization and not just the city as a container which perhaps at the at the beginning of her career in terms of the work on households that she perhaps did although i do remember she always used to say she really hated rural areas at one point where we were she always said i've got to be in a city and i think that was a reflection of personality she needed to be unless there was a beach yeah unless, of course of course <laughs> so i thought the way that you included um included her and also spoke to us about the new urban disposition and and multidisciplinarity was was really wonderful um, and I have a question which relates to something that actually you and Edgar, Edgar wrote, Edgar Peterson wrote a while back, which I found really useful in my own work, which is the, the translational urban research praxis, which I love, and it's based on African cities, but I found it really, really useful in terms of thinking about um, the co-production, um, the politics of location. What you don't necessarily address explicitly are feminist methodologies, which again I think speaks to, or I'd like to, I think that it's, it's, it's underneath a lot of what you spoke about. You talk about working more collaboratively, working in a more co-produced way. Um, and so I, I just wondered if, if you'd thought about that, just as a, you know, obviously a feminist methodology is a particular way of thinking, thinking about the urban and thinking about the cities. So if you have anything. On that. Thank you very much. Hello, thank you very much for the presentation of today. My name is Daniela. I am an exchange student of Peru. Now I'm studying at UCL for this term. And I wanted to ask, when establishing the global agenda, you talked about obviously some tensions that can happen between disciplines and multidisciplinarity. I wanted to ask about what to take into account when confronting power relationships in the local arena of ma many global soft cities. 
there's a question. Keep going. Ahead of you, ahead of you. There we go. Thank you. Um, my name is Lucy L. I'm from the Human Settlements Group at the International Institute for Environment and Development. It's IIED that Sue mentioned earlier. I'm not one of the people that helps with the negotiations. Um, <laughs> um, I um, wanted to talk, ask you a question about um, the science policy interface and your sort of uh, your call to action for us to try and influence policymakers. Um, I know from the inside, having worked in the UK government in the Department for International Development, that it's very difficult to be an urbanist there. First-hand experience of really struggling um, to exist, actually, as an urbanist <laughs> within the UK government. Um, the global goal number 11 also was nearly quashed by a number of governments that weren't interested in having it there. And my current work on urban refugees and displacement, despite the fact that the UN Refugee Agency trots out on a daily basis, the majority of refugees are in urban areas, you cannot get them to do anything about that. So I wondered, I mean, I, this is something I spend most of my life thinking about, well, why is it, why, in your perspective, why is it so difficult to get the urban taken seriously in this way in international development and humanitarian action? So yeah. that's your cue. Um, sure. Three big ones. <laughs> um, just, I mean, on, on the, the translational um, urban practice stuff, so for those of you who've not bumped into that term before, it, it comes out of the medics actually use it quite a lot. And what they mean by that is you, you, you research a problem with the intention of making a difference. Okay, in other words, so it's, it's, it's almost exactly the opposite of what we quite often put in of, you know, we shouldn't, your hypothesis shouldn't predetermine what you're going to uh, inquire on. And, and no, 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 it's not like that at all. It's like, okay, so we've got a cancer problem. How are you going to solve it? Should we design a new instrument? What's that instrument going to look like? And crucially to what Cathy's talking about here is that it's just the norm, not just the normative element of we wish to fix it, and we have to ask about what fixing it means for feminists, okay? It's kind of fallen off, we've, we've, that debate has really shifted and maybe it's got to get foregrounded again. But also, who needs to be involved in the design of the research and the testing of it and the execution of the implementation? And I think that's actually what really makes it a feminist methodology. In other words, so assuming that your, your, your normative position is one of of equity, we can again talk about what that means. Who needs to be there, and is it only women who need to be there, or is it not only women who need to be there? And I think that would, what's really nice about that translational sort of logic is that it it assumes that the people who are involved in the process have to be there. And so if you go back to that, so maybe that's men and women, and in particular kinds of roles, in particular kinds of places, maybe not just. The human, it may be more than human in the sense of a legal system or, or whatever else it is. But I, what's fascinating for me about that, Cathy, is that I, I'm here, challenge, please write the paper. What does is, what is a feminist translational methodology look like? Um, and I think it would be really useful. It would invoke, it seems to me, some of the kinds of ideas of kind of, you know, the gender web and all of those sorts of things, but it may be very different because I think it has much more. Uh, actors are much more present and barriers might be much more present than, than they perhaps were. But uh, that's just a thought experiment in, in, in response to it and I think it would be a really, really valuable thing uh, to, to think about. Um, then to Danielle's question about the southeast. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's a particularly poignant moment to uh, be asking that. Um, 
I don't know if you were involved last week, I think. There was a, there's a new volume art called Theorize, and the, the Theorize on the SE is the southeast, um, as opposed, if, if you imagine, write the word theory, in, and then SE at the end of it, Theorize, and the SE is the southeast, not the south. And it, it's, it's, it's a provocative, um, effectively, some um, a position that says, look, there are more differences within the South than there are commonalities, yeah? And in fact, that really there are as significant dynamics in the Southeast, which have been marginalized in the East and, and, and the Middle East in particular. And so thinking about the, the global Southeast is a more potent mobilizing force. Um, so it's a really nice volume. You, you might want to um, have a look at it. Um, it's an online volume and it's edited by Oren Yiftakel and Nisa Mammon um, and is free to download. Um, but, but I think that's the one point. I mean, the other point which we may make, and, and I know there are people in the room who are China specialists, is that the generic critique that a global urban agenda has to work for everybody means it actually needs to work for one in five people who live in China as much as it needs to work for people who live in Africa. Um, and so I think part of what we're saying in this kind of argument about kind of what is a global urban agenda and how do we get to it is precisely about saying, is this a new paradigm that you get to which enables you to talk to everybody at the same time? And I think implicit, in, if not explicit in what I'm saying here is that that's probably not gonna happen, but there may well be modalities of bringing uh, inquiry together in feminist methodologies, in new urban dispositions that have traction across scales and in multiple sites. So the test would be if this works in Palestine, does it work? Does this work in Detroit, does it work? Yeah? And so it's that exactly that kind of questioning of sort of, is there something that we can be doing if you assume that at some point we do need to come together to say something about cities, and that leads me on to Lucy's point, which is that I think actually at some point it is important that we say something about cities, and we haven't. We haven't because it's so hard. Okay. So how come we say stuff about climate, a lot about climate, we say a lot, we spend a lot on climate research, we say a lot about health, we spend a lot on health research, we spend virtually nothing on urban research, virtually nothing in global terms. Does that mean cities are not important to global change, to global transformation? Transparently, that's not the case. Okay, so why don't we do it? And I think some of what we're trying to sort of pull in this, this discussion is to be able to say, well, I think some of the reason is, is that there hasn't been a, enough of a common experience across the world to recognize what urban questions are in different places and how they may link together. In other words, it's been very easy to say, well, what's going on in Eastern Europe is about declining cities and what's going on in Western Africa is about rapidly expanding cities. These are just not the same thing. But that's about the differentiation rather than the amalgam. And if you go back to that slide I had with those horrible blue bubbles and you start to think about those dimensions of the urban and you start to think about, well, actually, maybe it is imperative that we come together and that there are some scales at which we have to all act. So clearly you have to act locally for your local agenda, but we all need people to act locally 
if we are to reduce emissions, to ensure biodiversity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So why is it so difficult? Well, you know better than I do because you've been on that coal phase. But I think one of the reasons is, is that it's already quite a big sector. We've got lots, it's like, it's trying to organize a tennis game is you only need four people, max, for tennis. You know, when you, when you organize a rugby game, you've got to get 15 people on each side. So you've got to get 30 people. So it's more difficult. And I think the urban one is a bit like that. You know, when, you, when you're trying to organize the scientific community who work on climate science, there are, I don't know how many there are, 5,000 of them, 10,000 of them. Okay, when you start to say how many urbanists are there, there are many more than that. Um, and we do not have a common language and we do not have translators. Um, and it seems to me that that's some of what we're trying to say. And we do not have common priorities. And I think it's that absence of common priorities often. It's that slide that I put up when I said, are oh, you falling asleep? Yeah? So what are our common priorities and can we articulate what those are? Because if you had to say our common priority is to get gender equity in cities, there are lots of cities that say yes. Okay? But there are plenty that would say no. If you had to say our common priority is to get a carbon reduction, I think at the moment you might win. And in a post-COVID environment, you might get a common agenda around health. So does that mean that we can begin to find some common points of entry? And do we need to have a proper fight about what the important ones are? But I don't think we've begun to think like that. And Lucy, you'll know better than I do that if you take an organization like DFID before it became FCDO, they could never get an urban uh, thing together because they could never decide which department it sat in. It was literally, it was as simple as that. Is this engineering? And then all the social scientists go, oh, God, no, it's not engineering. Don't be ridiculous. It's absurd that it's engineering. We want it here in social development. And then they'd get a tiny little budget, and they wouldn't talk to the engineers about transport or all the big budget items, and so nothing would happen, except you'd get a couple of gender programs running with a little community centre on the side. So I think that's some of, some of why. But, yeah, that's it. Go and talk to Lucy afterwards. She'll tell you really why. <laughs> As some of my students in the room will know, um, there was a very sort of happy set of faces one day at DFID because they'd won an internal battle to create the name plaque on the door as being the urban rural change team rather than the rural urban change team. And that was the first time that urban had managed to get up at the front and that wasn't so long ago. Um, so talking about your institutional spaces and uh, the pluralism or lack of within them. Um, are there any other questions from uh, within the room? Hyun, uh, to bring the microphone over here, I'm sorry. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thanks so much, Sue. Uh, Fengshin from Geography and Environment Department. Uh, really welcoming your in a, a call for Southern perspective, which seems to also indicate kind of Southern turn of urban epistemologies as well. Um, Why I welcome you know, uh, what you have shared today, uh, two things come to my mind. One is about the capacity uh, uh, to actually do this, uh, to implement this. And so the kind of, kind of things that, that come to my mind is, uh, A, you know, who, do, who do you have on your mind you know, uh, in terms of 
there's, there's a kind of groups of people, institutions, or organizations who are meant for, thought to be driving this initiative. So, and order, whether they would have kind of capacity and resource to actually make it happen. So that's probably one thing uh, that comes to our mind. So it would be nice to hear from your perspective and, and what sort of you know, kind of players you have in your mind who are actually able to promote this kind of initiative to produce urban data and so on. Uh, the second thing is about um, the existing equity, uh, inequity in terms of knowledge production. So if you kind of go back to the, uh, the, the global north based kind of you know, the, uh, knowledge production which involves you know, the existing you know, urban scientists you know, who, who are scientists and you know, who work in different disciplinary backgrounds, disciplines, you know, and you just kind of share just now you know, that they need to kind of have a quite urban tone, you know, to kind of reorient their activities to understand better you know, the urban connectivities and so on. But then these are probably you know, very well resourced in you know, the global north-based you know, institutions. Might kind of deepen the existing inequity of knowledge production, and therefore there's a bit of danger of you know, producing another la layer of inequity that can be imposed upon the global south. So I wonder how, how you can reconcile those two in your uh, kind of call for this uh, southern plan. Thanks. Hi, just this person here with her hand. Hi, thank you for the presentation. I'm Annalika, I'm on the BSc Geography of Economics program at the LSE. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation and the intersection of gender within urbanism and I wanted to see how you would tackle feminist methodologies in informal settlements where they go feminist methodologies in, like, in informal settlements where the government isn't isn't like giving out data on gender specific outcomes for example sanitation provision how do you tackle that without ethno ethnography things like that thank you um, I'm very mindful that there are people in the room who work on gender in informal settlements and, and who have expertise in ethnography. So one of the things I would do is ask them. Any more seriousness? But I think it, if I'm to riff off some of what we've, we've been talking about here, I think the provocation would be is that the value of ethnography clearly is that you're going to people who are in settlement now who have experiential knowledge and who are deeply ingrained and, and can articulate um, probably both the hidden and, and the known elements of what living in an informal settlement means and when and how it is gendered. And I would provoke that though is to say that that is necessary but not sufficient. Okay, and I think that's what this would, the work I've been talking about here would be saying, which is to say there may be some additional things which we really can know, which would be different from what we may get from ethnography, uh, which we want to hold alongside, in tandem with, in juxtaposition with that information. So, for example, what's the legal and regulatory system for getting... Um, into school, what is the walk to work? What is the barrier? Is it a land barrier, a housing barrier, a security barrier, a cultural barrier about identity? It may not be, in other words, at the individual level or even the household level. It may be a wider city-wide level. Um, and I also would think about that in, in a slightly different temporal register than just the now. Okay, I think particularly with ethnography, one of the things with this, the value of it lies in the now. But it doesn't always lie in what does that mean for the future and where does this take you to the future. So we'd want to kind of push it and what do we learn from the past? 
Okay, I mean, I think quite often history really teaches us, um, I'm biased, I would argue history teaches us more than anthropology, but maybe we can talk about that at drinks. <laughs> um, I, I, and, and as I said, there may be others who want to come in on that, but I, that, that's something how I would provoke. But, but I, I, um, and, I would, and, I, and the other thing that I would absolutely do would be to try and think about that across different age cohorts, um, because I think we don't do that well enough. Uh, you know, what does it mean for a, ch a girl child as opposed to what does it mean for an older woman, um, for example. So to problematize it in, in, a, in a slightly more complex way um, than simple storylines or narratives of individuals uh, that are there. Um, but then to, to Hyun's point, um, you know, we're not where we were 10 years ago on this stuff. And, and some of that is, as you will know, deeply and, and personally is because of some of the efforts of the big journals. So in, in urban studies, both the International Journal of Urban Regional Research and urban studies have made a concerted effort, a concerted effort, and they're not alone, but in urban studies they would be exemplars of making sure that they seek out and support scholars from the global south. Okay? I mean, they really have really pushed it, and that's fantastic. And I think what we will see in the next 10 years or so, and we are already seeing, is a new cohort of intellectual leadership coming out of places in the global south. I mean, and I would say this, Shen, wouldn't I? And I think we've got to be careful that we don't then say, well, if you're from Singapore or South Africa, you don't count anymore, and we're going to move on to make sure we're getting people from, you know, um, Tanzania and Congo because they are underrepresented. In other words, we've got to make sure that we keep and grow these cohorts um, across a range and make sure, and it's really important because in the space that we're talking about here, most people who are urban scholars are going to land up being specialists. They're going to be an ethnographer or they're going to be a data scientist and they're going to work on what they work on, which is great. It's what they need to do. The question is how does their work come into being with others? And a little bit of what you're asking is how do we get the generalists? How do we create people who've got a slightly bigger picture, who are, have been embedded in practice, who've got a political nous? They know, we've got a lovely line in, in the Urban Dispositions book about how do you know which fight to fight? You know, how, do you, how do you pick a fight? Which fights do you pick? You know, where, where's the important point of entry? And I think that's sort of what you're asking. And how do we, because those people are quite rare quite often. And for me, some of this lies in the, the destabilizing of the intellectual project as it has been for the last 20 years, which I would define as being quite rarefied. Um, which is not that it's anti-intellectual and not that it's not absolutely, they're superb scholars. I mean, they're amazing. I'd stand in great awe of them. But it's, so what question, you know, Gareth? It's like, so, so, so what? What are you going to change? It's like, you know, and, and what we really need to be able to do is to create sufficient numbers of people who understand what it takes to make a difference. And I mean, so if you think about somewhere like, what's going on in Gaza at the moment, well, why are we not talking to all the people who are busy sitting in Lebanon who've been doing this for a long time about what we may need to begin to start thinking about in particular kinds of ways? Or why are we not talking to people who've lived through, you know, so I think it's, it's about, as a community, having a sufficient understanding. And if you look at the IPCC, at the climate change people, for me, what they have done well is they have grown an epistemic community. They know each other. They talk to each other, 
they debate with each other, and they have over time distilled a very potent, very potent tool to make change. I don't think that they're interested in changing cities. Okay, the question for us is how do we change cities and what does it take to do that when we can't reinvent that model? We can't, that car doesn't exist for us. That, that, that fashion is gone it's, and there isn't money for it. So what else are we gonna do? And, and to answer your question is, is that I think one of the things that it does do is it rests on training lots of PhD students. It rests on teaching a different kind of curriculum. It rests on the journals putting out different kinds of things. And it rests, on your point, on being critical of apparently concepts that have kind of are untouchable concepts. You know, does, this, does the Global South actually help? Really, really? Does it really help? What about other places? You know, so we need to, have, we need to be able to create a, an intellectual culture that is, is able to, to pose and to challenge. Uh, person in the f middle here is a tricky one to get the mic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, my name is Anna Duplessis. I'm studying at UCL doing an MPA in urban innovation. And um, I really appreciated your point about the kinds of normative questions we need to be asking around these kinds of agendas. And I think it's useful making that explicit because those questions are being asked anyway. I think we just don't always see the normative values that sit behind them. I think I was curious about, maybe if you could say a little bit more about some of what those questions may be. I don't know whether in your paper you expanded on some suggestions for that, but also who should be asking them? Do they come from academia? Do they come from policymakers? Where, how do we get citizen voices involved in that? What are bottom-up normative questions on a global urban agenda? Yeah. If you don't want to come join the author team, you can just do the book review. <laughs> <laughs> so all of those things are, are explicitly in, in, in that book, which is, is, will come out, hopefully, later on in the year. Um, but, but I think that's exactly the point, is that questions are being asked and they are normative anyway. Who asks them, how they ask them, what they ask them about, when they are asked, what evidence they seek to answer them, these are all things which we, we know, and it's much more than just a fairly conventional kind of um, statement of your, your kind of your philosophy, if you like. Um, because what we're trying to say is that the very act of entering into the urban realm, of seeking to engage it, even if it's where am I going to work, and why am I going to work there, is in a way a normative question. You know, it's like. And, and so what does, what does that mean? And so, yeah, we do try and open up those very questions and, and who does the asking. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see your review later. <laughs> can, I, can I perhaps cut in on that? Because it's a question I sort of had anyway. In, in the sort of thread of your talk, uh, and perhaps particularly toward the end, you were kind of somewhat teasing us and tempting us with this sort of notion of sort of disruptor of knowledge um, uh, of information and in the policy setting too. That's sort of how that translates and moves over. Mm. Right? Um, but then you also use the phrase coherence. A lot of times we need kind mm -hmm. of coherence. Things, things have to make sense, right? There needs to be a narrative. You also need that multidisciplinarity. Mm. 
there needs to be some common ground, you to, there needs to be some generalizability and generalizers to do that, that sort of work for us. Um, and I wondered in that sort of vein whether you could comment a little bit about a sort of missing actor in your sort of ecosystem, which is the role of media. Mm. Um, you, because it seems that if you're going to get, what did you say, a sort of seat at the table, mm. uh, and you have to do it with sort of generalizable sort of statements, et cetera, et cetera, then perhaps, you know, UN Habitat is not the way to, to, to make that claim, right? Um, but through certain forms of media. So what that, that you've sort of given us today would be translatable into a sort of media um, narrative that could have some traction. I'm thinking mm. speculatively a little bit here. Mm. Um, I've got a kind of follow-up question just in the, in the in sort of interest of time, and it's largely unrelated. I love this phrase, temporal squeeze. Uh, and I'm going to steal like it and use guy. it. Um, <laughs> but one of the sort of tensions that, that struck me um, when you're talking again about multidisciplinarity and the sort of pluralisms and the common ground, and, and to some extent the normative agenda as well here as well, is that these new forms of data that you're talking about in the urban science are coming at disciplines, subdisciplines, cohorts, epistemic communities, etc., etc., at different speeds. And I think maybe this is the ethnographer element or the qualitative researcher element, right? Is that that speed of data, and particularly with AI, empowers certain voices very immediately. And I just wonder whether you have any sort of words of wisdom as to how we can kind of create slower data in certain respects, more thoughtful data, more grounded data, rather than speak to the power of the more immediate data, because I have a feeling, <laughs> and this is much a natural skepticism, that in the sort of philanthro-consultancy world, etc., and in that media world, it's the speed of data mm. that matters more than the grounding of that data. Mm. Um, so, yeah, just a yeah, perhaps some thoughts on that. Well, just on the temporal squeeze and, and the slow data, I, I have to say, I think some of the most sophisticated analyses of cities are coming out of um, a group called Global Urban History. I don't know if any of you read any of this stuff. Um, and, and it's basically a group of urban historians who've sought to recast uh, the conventional narratives of urbanization. Um, and it's a really interesting cohort of people. They come from all over the world. They work on cities that are not normally always in the spotlight. And, and, I, and I think it does give us, in a way, that, that um, I, I like them because I feel like they kind of hold an intellectual heart and pulse um, and an integrity um, that is the counter-narrative. And so it's exactly that thing of trying to sort of say this tension between the art and the science is one we have to hold on to. You've got to keep. You know, in, in, in this rhythm, you need, you need the, the, the slow pace as well as, uh, as where we're going. And, and they, for me, exemplify how you can hold on to that. Um, but, I, but I find your point about the media very provocative, Gareth. And, I, and I, Lucy, I'd I just try that back to a little bit of what you're saying. I've only been living in the UK for about five years, and I, one of the delights of being here is listening to the radio. Um, the amazing, extraordinary podcasts, and I mean, you could listen to them anywhere now, but I listen to them here in a way that I didn't used to in other places. 
And one of the things which really strikes me is that there's been this proliferation of what I think of as fairly high quality journalism um, about science. You know, Brian May and all those sorts of you know, lovely people of, you know, who talk about astronomy and um, all those things, and also of politics, um, and no doubt a whole range of other things. But there's no such program in cities. Okay, I mean, it's just astonishing. And I think some of that, to speak to your media thing, is to say that I don't think that we are able to make legible, so maybe better than making common, it's, it's a bit like describing your family to somebody else. We all know that there are contradictions in families, right? But we do have a common language for talking about that. You know, sometimes they're stereotypes and they're slightly flawed, but we, but we are able to talk about, across quite serious cultural divides sometimes, the commonalities of our families and of the tensions, whether it's around festivities like you know, what it means at Christmas or whether it's around intergenerational politics or you know, whatever it is. But we do not have that language for cities. And I think that's some of what I think I'm trying to get to, of saying it's not about saying we have to agree, but it is about trying to set out the lines of discussion so that we can have a conversation across unknown, not, not even necessarily contradictory things. You know, we, we, we may actually find that there are no contradictions uh, between the person who's a material scientist working on tarmac and the person who's working on, you know, um, mobility for women. I, I suspect that there are, because tarmac people generally want to sell it. Um, but, but the point is, is that we don't have that common language. And I think what's useful about the media lens is to stop to think about kind of, if you were either briefing somebody from the media or you were trying to set up some entry points for doing a set of really interesting high-level discussions about cities. What would you include? Who would you include? What would you get them to talk about? And I'm, I'm not sure that we are, are quite there. And I think that's sort of what's behind the Urban Disposition book, is to be able to say, if we're going to do that, we can't just take people who study urban theory. Because at least in terms of where urban theory has been, it is so far removed, either from the real politic of City Hall or so far removed from the realities of those women in informal settlements that it just doesn't actually, uh, it's not going to be credible, or not even credible, it's not going to be, it's just going to be boring for, for people because they won't recognize it. I don't know, that, that, it's, it's your media question that provoked that, Gareth, but I'm, so I don't think it's a response, I mean it's not an answer, it's a response. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I like the idea of coherence rather than consensus, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I do have a question about this post-paradigm uh, world, but we probably need some alcohol to ask the question, <laughs> and you might need some alcohol to answer the question, uh, or it may provoke a different answer. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, thank you, everybody, for uh, attending. Uh, this lecture, the, the clock is beating us. I love any talk that likens policy making and policy institutional access to a rugby match. Um, <laughs> that always uh, uh, will work for me. Uh, and thank you, Sue, for a very stimulating talk uh, and discussion in the question and answers. And if anybody would like to join us in the ground floor of the new centre building um, for some drinks and further discussion, if necessary, then you're very welcome to do so. Uh, just follow us as we wander out of this place. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.